That was the sound of a bug slapping to that nice shiny chrome part of your fork on your motorcycle. Who cares? You do, because that little bug probably put a little dent there that pushed up sides that's going to tear your seal out. Now you're gonna to learn today on this episode what to do if that happens and maybe even how to prevent it from happening to begin with. That and a whole bunch more. We're gonna talk more about suspension today and we got a gem from Sam Manicom. Stay with us, we got a good one. I'm Jim Martin and this is Adventure Rider Radio. This episode of Adventure Rider Radio is brought to you in part by Audible.com. Audible is offering our listeners, that's you, a free audiobook of your choice and a free 30-day trial membership. Just go to audibletrial.com forward slash ARR. And of course, the ARR stands for Adventure Rider Radio. You choose from over 180,000 audio programs, download a free title and start listening. It's that easy. Go to audibletrial.com forward slash ARR. That's audibletrial.com forward slash ARR and get started today. Before we jump into the suspension part of this episode, we're going to first do a gem. And we have Sam Manicom on here doing a very special one. But you remember what a gem is. A gem is those little spots that you only know if you're local or, or maybe somehow you've got intimate with them. They're the type of places that you ride by or routes that you would go by and not otherwise find unless somebody pointed them out to you. Well, that's what we're here to do. And today we have Sam Manicom. And Sam's doing one that we're calling Riding Ancient Roads. And I'm here with Sam Manicom. Sam, welcome back to Adventure Rider Radio. Hello, Jim. It's great to be back with you. Always great to have you on. Sam, what have you been up to? Oh, mate, I've been really, really busy. I've been bouncing around all over the place doing shows and book signings. And um, actually, this last weekend, I joined the GS Club UK for a, an event that they were doing down at um, Land's End, which is the southernmost tip of, of the UK. And um, oh, so funny, you know, Cornwall um, has decidedly unpredictable weather. So um, either side of the weekend, the weather's been glorious, but the weekend itself, 46 mile an hour winds blowing over the camping site. But it didn't <laughs> matter a jot. Everybody had a ball. Some fantastic fantastic parts of the world to explore. Do you know, one of the things that I really enjoyed about um, this particular event was that um, there were five of the older um, Airhead um, BMW GSs there. And between the five of them, um, Tiffany Coates and mine included, uh, between the bikes, we'd nearly racked up a million miles. Wow. That's fantastic, really neat. Eh? And both you and Tiffany are still riding these bikes as your main transportation. Absolutely right. Yeah, no, too right. My bike's an absolute star. I really like that, and I've said this before, but I really like that because it sort of dispels the myth that I think a lot of people sort of buy into that you need to go out and buy this brand new, you know, $25,000 adventure bike to go out and have fun. And, and the fact couldn't be farther from that myth. No, absolutely. I mean, I always think, listen, uh, whatever you want to do, you ride on, um, whatever you enjoy riding is in good condition, then go on it. Um, you don't have to have a particular type of bike, although if you've got the money and the inclination for one, then do it. Um, but uh, don't let choice of bike put you off actually hitting the road and, and going for it. Um, that's the most important bit. Yeah, someone just uh, emailed the other day about riding a Yamaha R6 and uh, wondering, you know, if it was uh, possibly the right bike. And you can't say it's the wrong bike. It may not be my idea of the right bike, but, uh, you know, whatever works. 
Yeah, absolutely. There are some guys out there that have been riding R1s around the world, Nick Sanders, Jacques Lucasen, and Bruce Smart, and so on. And um, yeah, these guys have had absolute balls. And gosh, the places that they've taken their bikes. And you've heard about um, uh, the forwards. They're the only couple... Uh, to have ridden um, a motorcycle to every country in the world, except for one, because um, southern Sudan was formed as a country after they'd finished riding. And these guys did it on Harley-Davidson. Well, we're, we're talking about gems, and Sam, I appreciate you coming on, because I'm sure you've got tons of these, um, these gem places to ride. And I'm sort of curious, you know, I asked you to come up with, with one for us. What did you come up with? Oh, do you know, when you first said this to me, my instant thought was to head for rides in Africa and Australia and Asia. But then a ride in the UK leapt into my mind, and it did so for quite a few reasons. It has an amazing history. It beats the hell out of riding the motorway. It's great fun to ride. And I think it's a route that any visitor to the UK should add to their to-ride list. In fact, anybody who's resident in the UK that hasn't ridden it yet, yeah, it's a goodie. So is this a route that you could take to actually get somewhere rather than just a little side trip? Because you said rather than riding the motorway. Yeah, you can. Um, it's a 370-mile a route that was actually laid down by the Romans, and it ran from Exeter way down in the southwest, right across England in an almost diagonal line to the city of Lincoln in the northeast. And just to give you, um, out of interest, to give you an idea of how small the UK is and how relatively long this route there is, therefore, the furthest that you can get away from the sea in the UK is just 70 miles. So you're talking about a route that really is probably your your one of your longest land routes then. Yeah, I guess it is. And as we talk, you'll find out that not all of it's available to to ride. There are some detours and so on for for very good reasons, but um a lot of it you can actually ride. And you probably know that Romans were famous for building amazingly straight roads. And sometimes across geography that really wasn't um straight line friendly, but they still did it. I suppose their passion was to get troops and supplies from A to B in the fastest possible manner. But um, the Foss Way, which I want to tell you about, um, that wasn't actually the reason that it started its life. Um, the word Foss actually comes from the Latin word fossa, which means ditch. And within the first few decades of the Roman invasion of Iron Age Britain, they built this sort of defensive foss or ditch across the country as their first line of defence. There are quite a few um, thoughts about where the, the subsequent road actually came from. But, I mean, the logical one to me was, well, to build it and defend it, you've got to have a track running next door to it, hadn't you? And I suppose over the years it developed into a full-blown road with Roman settlements along it. And those settlements were sort of small defensive towns or military camps and that sort of thing. Um, the people marching up and down it and so on would have been restocking their ready meals um, in those places. But actually, seriously, excavations of the various sites along the road show that um, Roman soldiers ate high-energy food. But it was simple, you know, lots of bread and vegetables. Um, uh, but they seem to be also partial to a fry-up because, you know, they've been doing digs in, in the various ruins and so on. And I love the idea um, of Romans loving fry-ups because that's something Brits are famous for. <laughs> this route now that's left that was built by the Romans, what condition of a route is this? Is this something that, that is um, still stone or has it been paved over? Some sections are paved over, some sections are um, green lanes, some sections uh, you can't actually ride along if, if you're following the true route, but there are roads um, that run parallel to those sections. 
and the route that I'm going to describe um, using some road numbers and so on in case anybody wants to take notes as I'm talking. Um, you know, they can just pick those out and um, make an, a, a jot down of them. And we'll put the, some of the notes in the in our show notes so they can mm-hmm. actually go there and look at them and, and figure out where you're talking about. But this is great. So this is a full-on adventure. I mean, you're talking everything here. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, my second point was it beats the hell out of riding the motorway. England is an overcrowded country with monster traffic. I mean, not to Indian standard, of course, and thank goodness for that, bearing in mind the speed that most people seem to sit on at the motorway. Sort of 75 to 85 miles an hour seems to be the norm. And, of course, all of those are breaking the speed limit because they're not supposed to be doing more than 70. But the other thing is on the motorway, you get so many people breaking the law by travelling obliviously in their own mobile phone world, and I hate to see that. But you also have the Sunday afternoon drivers, and these guys sit on a 70-mile-an-hour road at 50 miles an hour and they're just like big rocks in a mountain stream they drive everybody nuts and that uh, means that people are behaving rather unpredictably and motorways in the UK became hugely important in the 1960s when um, a lot of the the railways were closed down and they weren't being profitable Um, most of that was down to motor transport being bought in but um, yeah I mean the motorways they're important most of the things that we need to survive in the UK are transported by truck nowadays on the motorway I kind of like to think of them as being the arteries that keep the the UK alive but it, it doesn't mean that I like to ride them unless I'm in a hurry of course Do you know, somebody once said that motorways were designed to get you from A to B in the fastest possible way and without seeing anything. And I agree, (laughs) you might as well put blinkers on when you travel most of them. You mean that last part was actually in there without seeing anything? (laughs) Oh, absolutely. I tell you what, you know, you can get onto the motorways and you can just ride, 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 and you hardly see a thing change. I mean, there are some countries where it's worse, but um, in the UK, well... And I just think, why ride these? They're hectic, they're uninteresting, they're unpredictable, though vital. But I'd rather ride the Foss Way when I'm heading from the southwest up into the Midlands and onwards to the northeast. Do you know, for the section of the road that I'm going to talk about, um, it only takes 20 minutes longer to do on a bike than it does on the motorway. And for me, there's no contest. I'd rather have fascination um, for miles rather than... Um, blinkers nowadays people are so obsessed with um doing many things at once and and getting places quickly it's easy to fall into that just get on the like you say the motorway the fastest way and and buzz down as fast as you possibly can but of course talking to a world traveler such as yourself i don't have to tell you about it but Mm -hmm. um when it comes to traveling the 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 uh, the traveling part is part of your experience not just the destination so you know it's it's clearly far better to find a route like this it may take an extra few minutes um, and get there having having some enjoyment and actually feeling relaxed the whole bit. Um, we have a similar route here. We've got our inland highway on Vancouver Island, which is fast, and at least on our section of Vancouver Island, it's multi-lane. Um, you know, you get somewhere a little bit quicker. It might shave 10, 15 minutes off, or you can ride the old route, and that's inland, by the way, and you see nothing, mm-hmm. same same design as, as your high motorways. Mm-hmm. On the the ocean side here, you can take the ocean side and you go through little small towns and you drive right along the ocean. It's gorgeous, but you're driving very slow. To me, I almost always take the slow route. I I know exactly the road you're talking about. I've ridden it. And the book cover um, for Tortoise to Totems, I've ridden that road. And the totem pole that is on the cover actually comes from one of the towns on the road you've just been talking about. Oh, there you go. So there's a challenge. Somebody just has to, to get your book take it along that route and find the spot and get a photograph of themselves holding that book at the totem pole. That would be good. I I would love to see that. What a fantastic idea. Brilliant. 
And where, where does this route start? Okay, I'm going to take you on a section of the Foss Way, which actually covers roughly a third of the way. Now, the ride can take you just a few hours, but I think that most people, once they know what there is there to see, um, will actually want to stretch it into a couple of days, and they might even want to stretch it into a week. I'm not going to tell you exactly how many miles it is yet, um, because I want you to hear about all of the different things there are to see and do, um, and then tell you how, how far you, you've got to actually um, explore all of those things. And there, there are loads of things to do along this route. But actually, what I'd like um, the rider to do is to start off by taking a bath. Okay. We're going to start in the um, ancient Roman city of Bath, or Aquaesulis. It's such a good kicking off point. A bath is actually famous for both its Roman and Georgian influences. And I personally think it's one of the most attractive cities in the UK. But, you know, actually, I think of it more as being an overgrown town than a city. You know, it just doesn't have that feel of, of sprawl. The city centre, um, the streets there are lined with these wonderful, elegant Georgian stone buildings, you know, tall wheel build, uh, windows and clean-cut lines. And they're built of a pale bath stone. You know, this stone shines, even on a rainy day. But wh why did I say take a bath? The city sits on top of a thermal spring, and the Romans developed spa bars. I can, I'm sure the ancients have been using these for generations, but you can imagine the delight of all those battle-weary, heat-missing Romans as they sunk themselves into the steaming waters. Um, in Georgian times, the healing nature of these waters actually attracted the rich, and the city developed into a really classy and popular place. It even attracted royalty with its spa and theatre and its beautiful river valleys and countryside. And the other thing is, it's only 97 miles from London, which in Georgian times was a leg stretch, but not that much so. But So start the trip in um, the ride in Bath. But I think anybody wanting to do this should give themselves a couple of days to explore um, the city first. And um, when anybody starts researching Bath, you'll see exactly why I've seen, said that. But when you head out of Bath, you're um, going east on the A4. You won't be exactly on the Roman roads. Um, the original Fosray is um, hidden under farmland, but you'll be riding very close um, as you head north onto the A429, um, which is near the M4. And the M4 is one of those dreaded motorways. It's the one between London and Wales. And as you ride, you'll be passing next door to the Bury Camp. And this is a circular Iron Age fort. The contours of the land helped the location of this fort, but on two sides you still have a four-yard wide ditch, and it's still a yard deep. With a little effort, you can actually get to it, and I think anyone who hasn't seen an Iron Age fort should take the time to, to make their first detour. It's not actually that far. The A4 then takes you um, on heading sort of north northeastish um, through the old Royal Air Force airfield at Kemble towards the city of Sirencester. And as you ride through this area, the countryside is really lush and very fertile. You'll be riding through small woods and along tree-lined sections. And in other sections, you get fantastic views out of the, over the rolling farmlands. And many of the fields are still bordered by stone walls. In fact, the whole route I'm talking about is across parts of what's commonly known as the Garden of England. And if you're into green laning and on a suitable bike, it's still possible to ride sections of the original road here. The Sirencester is your next um, aiming point, and it's a really small city. It's, it's a nice place, and it still retains some of the original cobblestone roads. And depending on what time you start your ride, I think it's worth ignoring the ring road and stopping off for a coffee, or lunch, of course, if you're a bit of a late riser. 
Uh, and a rest in an old world pub will give you a moment to appreciate that this actually was Roman, the Roman second largest city in England. Um, and by the way, um, I've said Sirencester as the town name. Um, Sester actually comes from the Roman word castra, which means military fort. And these, these little nuggets are one of the reasons that I, I like this road so much. In Sirencester, there's an, an absolutely excellent museum. It's the Corinian Museum, and it gives you a really t good taste of the area that you're riding through and the area that you're going to be riding through. And you also cross the River Thames just near here. And you know, the number of times I've been up and down on that road, and I didn't realize that I was heading over the Thames. And for anybody who doesn't know, the Thames, of course, is the main river that, rides, uh, that travels through London. Now, from Sirencester, you stay on the A429. The A429 becomes your friend, really, because you're on it for quite a long time. You carry on um, in a sort of northeasterly direction still towards the um, Foss Bridge and Stow-on-the-Wold. This, this section of the ride takes you swirling through the countryside on what I think is a, a bit of a roller coaster of a ride. You know, there are plenty of straight sections, which is what you'd expect of a Roman road, um, but... Um, it, it just goes up and down. It's really curving. And uh, when you ride it at a bit of a click, you can feel your suspension sagging in the bottom of the dips. It's quite a mm, buzz. Nice. Um, amazingly, over the whole route from Exeter to Lincoln, the Fossway never actually strays further than six miles from a straight line. That's quite fantastic, wow. isn't it? The engineering yeah. that the Romans, um, the skills they had, quite phenomenal. But of course, as I mentioned earlier, you know, we, you're not quite so lucky with the ride that you do now because time and found bound, bound, farm boundaries and that sort of thing have added some twists and turns. But they're actually a bit of a delight to ride. In fact, being on a motorcycle on this road makes you king of the queen of the route, of the route because you're never stuck behind tractors and combine harvesters for very long because it's you know it's it's just two lanes so um, it is quite easy if you're in a car to get stuck for quite a while but on a bike no worries you can scoot on past. The next landmark on on the route is, happens just before Foss Bridge, and this will be marked on on anybody's map that's um, good enough scale. Just before you get to Foss Bridge, hang a left. You can head over to something called um, um, Chedworth Roman Villa. It's just a few miles, and this is the site of one of the largest Romano-British villas in the UK. At one time, it was a grand Roman mansion. It had mosaic floors and bathhouses and hypercourts. It's an absolutely fascinating place to wander around. Now, I don't know whether you've come across the word hypercourse before. This was the underheating system, underfloor heating system that the Romans actually used. And what they'd do is they'd raise, raise their floors on stilts, they'd make fires, and then they'd blow the hot air underneath the floor. Now, before we started um, on air, um, I mentioned to you about the word caustic and where it comes from. And this, again, is one of the reasons that I love historical rides. Um, in this case, it comes from the ancient Greek, hypercaust. Now, hypo means under. And caust means burnt. And so caustic, well, it's you get burnt by something that's caustic, don't you? So hypercaust, right. underfloor heating with a, with a slant. It's amazing technology. For, I mean, if you think about it, this, this is radiant flooring, which we today, people talk about it like it's the latest, greatest things for home, and there the Romans were doing it. Uh, too right. And, you know, the technology that they were using was very, very simple, but hugely effective. And you can imagine all these Romans, you know, coming across from Italy and so on. And, of course, they would have found um, England, particularly spring, autumn and winter, somewhat chillier than they'd been used to. So um, this underfloor heating must have been really important to them. But, of course, it was um, only the middle and upper class Romans that got this. The rest of the people had to, um, well, stay chilly. 
The next bit of the, the ride takes you to um, a town called Stowe-on-the-Wold. The next one along from that is Morton in the Marsh, and these are both great places to stop for lunch. Um, if you're taking your time, though, and you're going off and you're explore, exploring the um, ancient Britain fort and um, the Roman ruins and so on, then it's also a really nice place to stop overnight. And you've got a stack of um, very ancient and beautiful Cotswold stone hotels to stay in. And for those people who aren't quite so flush, there are plenty of B&Bs, bed and breakfasts to stay in, and there are camping sites nearby. And quite a few of those are on farms. So if you're visiting the UK, you can go and stay on one of those, and you've got a chance to look at um, farm life from the centre, from the core, um, which I, I thought was um, quite an interesting opportunity. But Stow on the World is um, a fascinating place in its own right. And you get a, a really um, new slant on British history at Stowe. It was founded by the Normans. It was at a crossroads. And fairs have been held there by royal charter on Thursday since 1330. They're still wow. held. And there's actually um, an annual horse fair. Now, these crossroads... Um, the town came about because the crossroads made it such a natural place to trade goods and they were coming from all over the region even as far away as Wales you know yeah they were bringing fish from the coast charcoal and iron and wool and general farm products leather work and all of that sort of thing that you know was were the mainstays of life in those days and one thing that um, makes me laugh about this the narrow old streets of the town were considered to be ideal for controlling the flocks of sheep that were brought to market can you imagine the sheep jams that were being caused <laughs> <laughs> something else that makes me laugh about this place is that um, the markets became so important that to cater for the numbers of people every single house in the main street and the market area were turned into ale houses beer on tap which is a, a pub <laughs> absolutely yeah too right can you imagine how many pubs there were there must Jeez. have been I don't know 20 or 30 pubs so you can imagine how huge the influx of, of people buying and selling were so you mean these fairs have been running from 1330 continuously till now? Pretty much continuously. There were a few years for various reasons where they didn't run. Um, they're not as huge as that now, um, but the markets still do run on a Thursday. That's just amazing. So it'd be worthwhile to go there on a Thursday where you can get to experience it. Absolutely, definitely. And you know, going back to the horse fair for a minute, actually there are two. There's one in May and there's another one in October, but the May fair is the biggest. So if anybody can time their ride to go through um, in May, then they're on, they're on an absolute photographic winner. Um, it's actually a gypsy horse fair nowadays, and it's one of the biggest gatherings of its kind in the UK. And many of the gypsies still arrive in their traditional horse-drawn caravans. Have you seen photographs of those? They're yeah, tiny I, little things. I've read about this fair, actually, and they, they arrange weddings and things there, right? Oh, too right. Absolutely. It's a, it's a full-on focal point for gypsy life. And of course, everybody else is welcome too. Um, the next section of the ride, basically you just stay on the A429 um, for the next bit. You ride through Morton in the Marsh, a another lovely place. Um, but you keep going until you get to the town of Halford. Actually, it's a small village. It's only 25 miles on, and it's on the boundary with Gloucestershire. And there you ride straight onto a minor road, the B445. The next 45 miles you're on are on an amazingly straight bit of road, which take you about an hour and a half to ride. So you can imagine how small this road is, 45 miles, um, and it takes you an hour and a half to ride. And one of the things you have to watch out on this section, though, is there are plenty of crossroads, but they stagger them. And sometimes they're only staggered by about five or six yards, but that's to stop... Um, people like us going a little bit too quickly but you do have to be careful of these things because you do come across them quite zippily 
Um, anyway, as you're heading along um, the B445, you ride through all sorts of small but very picturesque um, villages such as Brinklow. And this is a lovely place and an another place to stop for a cream tea. So scones and um, cream and strawberry jam, that sort of thing. But my section of the, of the ride actually ends on the, the A5. Now, this is a, a main route, not a motorway, but lots of um, dual carriageway, so four lanes. And this heads west, um, heading north um, across um, the top of Coventry and Birmingham. And you're right in the centre of England here, and you can choose which way to go next if you want to carry on on your journey. You can go on um, towards Leicester, on, carrying on on the Foss Way, and you can keep on going towards Lincoln on, on the Foss Way from Leicester. But my advice is to turn around and do this section of the B445 again, but in the opposite direction. It's such a nice ride. You know, people often say to me, never go back. But I don't believe it, because I think when you go back along a route that you've just ridden, you're seeing it from a completely different direction. So you see a, a completely new slant of the same area, and I think that's just adding double the value. Yeah, that's a great point, and maybe something that caught your eye when you came through the first time that you kept going, you could actually check out on the way back. Yeah, too right, because there are some sections where you're just torn. This is brilliant riding. Do I ride or do I slow down and look at the view? So this gives you a chance to double whammy it. Now, this is where I tell you about how far you've ridden. Okay, here goes. From Bath to this turnaround point on the A5, you've ridden just 110 miles. Oh, man, that's amazing. So there's all that packed into that tiny little section. Absolutely. And with the road conditions, if, um, if you haven't stopped anywhere, then it'll take you about three hours to ride. But I'd lay odds on anybody getting on this road stopping quite a few times. Um, and I tell you what, I think it, it would be so easy um, to spend a couple of days in Bath and then two or three days riding um, up the Fosway. You could very easily turn this into um, a five-day or even a seven-day ride. There's so much to see and explore and enjoy. But listen, I didn't want to stop people um, at the A5. And you know that I've suggested that people turn around and do that last section again. When you ride that back down um, the 4455, you come back to the town of Halford, well, just before the town of Halford, and there's a, a roundabout there. If you hang right there, eight miles later, you can end your ride in Shakespeare Town, Stratford-on-Avon. And um, it it's just makes a, another magic stop, another wonderful place to stay. And a couple of days there and you can go to the theatre and explore the old town and so on and just um, sh soak up Shakespeare. So that's, great. That's, that's another good reason to start off with a bath. You'll be on the road for a while. What type of bike is required for this? Do we need a dual sport bike? You can ride it on absolutely anything. Absolutely anything. If you want to get on some of, onto some of the green lane sections, then you'll need something that's capable of that. And a lot depends on what's happening with the weather. Some sections, um, I haven't rid them, but um, I've been told by friends who have um, that they can get quite boggy. Um, so, yeah, you'd need something that can cope with that. But um, if you're going to stay on the roads that I've described, um, then you can do it on absolutely anything. And green laning, for those who um, have not heard the term before, is, is um, what many people consider off-roading or dirt roads. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And Sam, you're going to be at some shows that people can probably stop by and see you at. Well, for those of you who are going to be heading for Expo in Arizona, yeah, come and say hello. I'm going to be there. I'm really looking forward to being there. And if uh, you're English and you're heading down to Paynton in a few weeks' time, I'll be down there. It's the Bikers Make a Difference Bike Festival on the seafront. 
And if you're in Europe, I'm going to be in Denmark in a town called Horsens for the um, State Prison Motorcycle Festival. People are just going to have to look that up on the web to, to see what, why it's the State Prison Motorcycle Festival. And um, I'll also be heading over to Hags Bank up in Cumbria for their event in early June. So I'm bouncing around a lot, which is great because it get, means that I get to meet more people. Sam, thank you very much, and I really appreciate this gem. It's absolutely fantastic. Oh, thank you. You're very, very welcome. That's what it's all about, isn't it? Sharing the fun of the road. Absolutely. And I've been speaking with Sam Manicom, and you can find out more about Sam by visiting his website, www.sam-manicom.com. Well, we're going to kick off the second episode of our suspension series where we're talking about adventure motorcycle suspensions. But, you know, really this covers all motorcycle suspensions, not just adventure motorcycles. So no matter what you ride, you want to pay attention to this. There's tons to learn. We have two experts today. One of them is Max McAllister, who is a a suspension expert from Traction Dynamics, and they do motorcycle suspension. The other one is the suspension guru at TourTech USA, Ian Glynn. We're going to start off with Max McAllister, and he's got a bunch of things for us we're going to learn from him one is is at the start i mentioned about the bug hitting your fork and making the dint well max is going to set us straight on what we can do to prevent it and what we can do to fix it if it happens max McAllister, traction dynamics Max, there are some questions here that I'm going to ask you that I've asked all the other companies as well. And I do this for this reason. Now, you as a listener, if you're listening to this thinking, what is he doing? I've already heard him ask these questions before. Here's the reason. If you're going to buy suspension components, really anything for that matter, but especially your suspension components, if you're going to buy these things, you need to have your list of questions and ask the different manufacturers, ask the different people that you're buying from to ensure that you're getting answers that you want. You can also compare the answers from one to the other to see if there's conflicting things there or maybe if they just have different views and then you can choose the one that best suits your purpose or your views so max let me start off by asking you what is your recommendation for the 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 first thing that we can do or let's say the best bang for the buck that we can do with our bike uh literally the most rudimentary way to improve a bike is to have the spring rates appropriately selected for your rider weight and for your intended use um, if you did nothing else, that one thing, you know, is the single biggest change to the, the, the feel and performance of the bike for the smallest amount of money that you could make. There's nothing else, not any engine related change or, you know, uh, component related change that will improve the ride quality, uh, other than having it sprung to suit your weight and intended use. What wears out? As a general rule, if without the componentry itself wearing out, the wear items in it will wear out. And then starting with the most common item, which is the fork seals. Um, and uh, in the case of adventure bikes, uh, dust seals as well. So there's on the typical motorcycle fork, there's um, uh, a dust and an oil seal, oil seal being closest to the oil in the fork. The dust seal is just sort of a pre-guard and um you know, our, our joke is, you know, it keeps out the birds and the sticks. But in the in case of an adventure bike, it is doing much more work than on a normal street going motorcycle, which really doesn't experience the dirt and, um, uh, the, you know, the harshness of environment that um, an adventure bike might, you know, like splashing through a creek and then going up a dusty road and having, you know, a, a, a icing form, you know, uh, for like cake icing, the mud 
scrape, scrape, you know, piled up on the forks, you know, which is very destructive to the rubber components and the polished surfaces. So um, the dust seal does play a more important role. So uh, those two components are first to go and most obvious if people have ever had fork seal leaks, which almost it's almost impossible to be a motorcyclist and not have experienced a fork seal leak at some point. Um, and then past that, uh, the other internal wear items are the fork bushings. And those are the two Teflon-coated surfaces that uh, the two halves of the fork glide on. And uh, they're configured in different ways, sometimes on the chrome tube, sometimes both pieces in a in the aluminum tube, um, and there's a, a range of names for that, but we tend to call it the tube and the leg on a on an upside right fork. Um, and uh, the um, so, but those parts are inexpensive, and they are designed to be replaceable as they wear, so that we don't have to throw the whole component out. Uh, now, certain models of bikes and certain things will again you come across them over time and in places. Uh, uh, as that bushing wears, if you fail to service it, now you'll have bare bronze rubbing on aluminum. That really adds to dramatically contaminate the fork oil, and then it starts barreling out the component that it's sliding in. Um, so changing the seals and bushings with um, uh, regularity is important. Um, and again, depending on the model of bike, some, some models of bikes don't even have a recommendation. And... Uh, uh, which, which is sad from the manufacturers, but that uh, 25,000, that 30,000 mile window you talk about there, uh, that would definitely be the outside limit for having fork routine fork service done, which for us is oil seals and bushings as required. Um, uh, they're easy to inspect and if, if they're not worn, there's no need to replace them. But if they are, again, it's an inexpensive part and uh, com particularly compared to replacing a whole half or leg of a fork. Um, so, and at that time, typically a, a good shop will polish the tubes, the sliding surface. Um, in our shop, we have a lathe set up that we spin the fork at extremely high RPM and give it a, a really high polish um, to help reduce drag and make the fork move more freely. Um, and at that time, when we see little dings and scratches and things, we can take them down and smooth them out as well. And um, uh, that that, you know, again, dramatically improves seal life. So you're uh, saying with the forks, though, that it's, um, we're, we're not even waiting for a leaking seal. You're saying that it needs to be done at a, at a certain interval. Sure. Uh, and uh, so th the big problem is um, the oil. Now, although it's not like an in engine oil where it's being, you know, superheated and then there's, uh, you know, combustion byproducts dumped into it, it kind of has its own series of problems. Uh, but the, so inside a fork, we, we do have almost always one bare aluminum surface somewhere that has a, this a Teflon bushing sliding up and down at a million bazillion times, you know, over the course of the life of the motorcycle. Um, and you're rubbing on aluminum with anything kind of creates oxidation. If you've ever just rubbed a rag on bare aluminum, you get that black stuff in it. Mm -hmm. um, that's going off into your fork oil. As that Teflon wears down, the Teflon's going into the fork oil. Um, as the fork spring itself is gliding up and down against the tube inside the fork, it's rubbing and then little tiny shards of, of spring steel will flake off into the fork. And uh, just due to current modern conven conventional fork cartridge layout, all of that stuff settles down to the bottom of the fork. But in the modern fork cartridges, oil is pumped in and out through the bottom of the fork cartridge, the damping unit itself. So 
all that debris gets sucked up into the sensitive damping unit and then pushed back out over and over. And frequently it hangs in the sensitive valving and uh, then you'll have a compromised damping force in the fork. So your fork can slowly lose its damping capability over time just through use. And if you're riding your bike, you know, all the time, it, it isn't going to happen like a light switch. You're gonna, it's just going to, the performance is going to slowly degrade. So having the fork oil changed um, is just kind of like breathing new life into it. And nothing like changing oil in an engine, which is, you know, undetectable. Uh, but this, um, you're talking about a subtle damping force. And um, as the fork oil breaks down, it is extremely noticeable when you change it. Uh, like I said, you won't notice it slowly degrading because it's very, very imperceptible. But when you let it, if you let it get really dirty and trashed and then change it, it'll be very obvious that you've neglected it. <laughs> well, that's a really good point because this is one of the few maintenance things that you do where you're actually going to get a reward from it. Because normally, like you say, we change the oil and we spend our, you know, $30, $40 or whatever we're going to spend changing our oil. And you sort of come out with, I mean, you think in your head the bike feels a little bit better, but really nothing's changed. Whereas this is going to give you a change. An absolute change, and and by the way, you, you actually have opportunity, depending again on the fork and the model and the bike and the configuration, to actually change it by changing the viscosity of the oil. So, uh, you know, certain forks might come with a very light oil in it, and uh, you want a little more damping effect, and you can just simply put a higher viscosity uh, oil into the fork, or the sh and uh, again at the professionals tend to serve as shocks only because they're sealed units but some some do it yourself as will work on their own forks but so changing the fork oil to a different viscosity can give you an immediate change but again if you were to do nothing but return it to literally uh, original factory operating condition um, you will definitely notice an improvement and uh, uh, and again let's if we go further and call it let's go into the case of neglect You've been out past fifty thousand miles, and you've never changed the fork oil in your in your motorcycle. Now the dampers are really working poorly. Uh, you'll see tire cupping. You, you know, you start spending money on things you don't know you're doing. You know, tire wear will accelerate, um, and again, your general overall riding satisfaction will drop. Um, and that's um, again, it's that uh, the old analogy of the frog in the pot of water. I don't know if you ever heard that, but sure, uh, yeah, the the frog will cook if you put him in cool water and turn the heat on slowly over time and never jump out. So that's kind of what's happening with suspension. It degrades very, very slowly and imperceptibly over time. Uh, so we do see that all the time. Uh, and sadly, a, a good portion of the work we do is, you know, only when a component has failed, where the seals have leaked and now the fork's in a you know, bad state of repair. Uh, and then it shows up for us to try and bring it back to life. Now, in the case of adventure bikes, there can be a whole new level of um, the component destruction uh, to neglect. And again, that comes back to the environment a lot of the bikes are ridden in. So if a fork seal starts leaking on your adventure bike, you don't have to stop driving at that moment, uh, get where you're going, and, uh, and you can get it repaired. But it's nothing you should wait on. Now, let me, let me qualify that just because I, you have to qualify everything these days. If you're in Alaska and you live in Florida, um, don't wait to get home to Florida to repair that. But uh, yes, if you're riding around Florida and you get home to Florida, then get your fork seal fixed. But um, 
So having the oil on the fork tube leaking past the seal, uh, you're riding into a dusty environment, dust sticks to the oil, and now we have a grinding compound on the del you know, on the sliding surface that the seal has to mate with, and it just destroys it and uh, makes a big mess. And uh, frequently then you can end up having to replace hard parts, not just the simple fork seals and bushings. And if we've come from riding street bikes, for instance, and, and got into riding adventure bikes, it can be something that you're not really aware of. But the fact that you've got to worry about now contamination from the outside, contamination from the, the wear on the inside, and the fact that you're you're really abusing this thing far more, or at least using it far more than what you would in a street bike. A street bike will have a certain amount of movement for it, but anyone who rides an adventure bike on even just rough roads and trails, you're pumping it a lot more, and the, the fork is, is getting much more of a workout. So we're really really big or the number one candidate really I guess over the off-road riders for really taking care and servicing our forks and, and even our rear shock absolutely true so there is you know, twice the physical movement frequently on an adventure bike compared to a street bike so uh, you know literally that seal which is not no better no more superior no advanced in any other way over one that's going on a street bike instead of traveling over 100 millimeters frequently, is now traveling over 200 millimeters, um, you know, we're, you're doubling the range that that thing has got to work and uh, doubling its literally wear over every bump. So um, those, you know, picky owners, uh, you know, we see everything in between. There are people who say, I'm not fixing it until it's broken. And then there's guys who say, yeah, but I'm crazy. I want mine serviced super frequently. What do you recommend? Um, so... And then there'll be models of bikes on occasion that exhibit some symptom, like, uh, you know, although it's not an adventure bike, it's uh, not unheard of for people to take a Honda Goldwing on a, an adventure ride. You know, people ride them to Alaska. Um, you know, on a Honda Goldwing, the lower fork bushings wear out very rapidly. So, um, you know, certain bikes will exhibit certain problems, and then uh, that's one that we can recommend to customers a more frequent service interval if it's required for that particular model of bike. You mentioned about the the abuse that the seals take from all your debris that comes in. You mentioned the birds and the sticks being kept out by the uh, dust seal. Are boots a better idea? Because most of these bikes, or many bikes nowadays, come with upside-down forks. There's no place to mount a boot. They have the seal totally exposed to all the dirt and debris that flies up from your wheel. Are, are boots something to consider? Well, you know... Uh, we're not, I guess I would say I'm not a pro boot guy. Um, first of all, for all the reasons you've said, they, they were, uh, you know, part for the course decades ago, but, um, nowadays the manufacturers will have like hidden protection that you don't necessarily see like a half wrap of a fender or, you know, a particular guard in a certain location that may be kind of imperceptible as protection. Um, it, and you know, if there were some rampant problem, they would be on it and they would have come up with, you know, in other words, they don't want to be warranting fork seals at dealerships night and every 500 miles on a, on, you know, X model adventure bike because it's not, um, uh, because it has constant seal leaks. So, uh, I'd, I'd say we're kind of making a problem where one doesn't exist. Um, the, if you were going to do one, there's some companies that there's a couple companies that make, uh, some neoprene stuff, but here's the, here's the most common problem with all of the, the wraparound type guards. And that's that they work fine as long as the fork isn't moving much. But in the cases it starts to come to the bottom, it'll, they'll tend to bunch up and jam into things. And sometimes it'll jam 
fold up and get jammed into the seals or get packed in, you know, hammered into towards the seals as you bottom or come close to bottom. So there's not really been any good um, solution to that, short of a mechanical guard that, um, again, is covering the, the forward-facing segment of the tube for the greatest amount of time. Now, tubes rarely experience any kind of damage from behind or from the side. It's always, always the forward leading edge. And the, the two sources of that are uh, your friend in front of you and, uh, you know, not even necessarily acting silly like roosting you or something. He can just be riding along and, you know, uh, kicking up rocks and things naturally, just kind of gently, uh, just from the act of a tire rolling, picks up rocks. And uh, <clears throat> they can fling back and bang your bike if you're riding really close to each other. So those rock nicks, um, when a rock dings your fork tube, uh, what what happens there is it's kind of like um, a meteor hitting Earth. It's not just a dent in the tube that's created, but it, it dents it and it pushes metal up like um, a volcano. And that the part that's sticking up is what pretty much instantly starts wrecking your fork seal, destroying your fork seal. So um, uh, if you were Mr. Adventure Rider and you're going out for a long ride, you're going to be away from home. Uh, I would say anybody with any sense should be looking over their bike at night when they finish riding for the day or in the morning before they get going. Um, and just to make sure, see what's going on, look for leaks, look for problems. And that's a great time to look at your fork tubes and uh, give them a wipe. Now, uh, um, I, I'm going to come back to that rock ding in a moment, but the most common thing that gets a fork seal is a bug that smashes onto the fork tube, sticks there, and dries. Now, a dead bug on your fork tube will destroy a fork seal as fast as mechanical damage to the tube itself. Wow. So, it, it's simplest thing, silliest thing, and it just kills fork seals. So, when you're in a nasty environment, or you know, it's humid, where there's lots of insect life, and you're riding along smacking bugs. At the end of the day, you need to take your can of spray polish or whatever you got on your bike out, or at worst, the wet rag in from the hotel room and wipe all the bugs off of the leading edge of the fork tube. Uh, uh, nothing like a, a, a free bug costing you $200 in fork seal repair because um, the bugs are free, but the fork seals aren't. Um, and then past that, uh, I want to bring that backwards to the rock things. So worthwhile um, in, your in your home garage, but if you're going on a trip to throw you know, a 12 or 15 inch long piece of some uh, 200 or 400 grit um, emery cloth on your bike somewhere. It won't even take up any space. But should you happen to find the rock ding on your fork tube, you know, or several from riding one day, uh, that night or in the morning, you need to polish those down. And uh, you can literally do it like um, a shoeshine boy. You, you put the emery cloth across the tube and just move your fist forward and backward effectively and polish it like shining a shoe and uh, the emery cloth will take down the volcano edge if we're going to call it that the the raised sharp edge that's created from a rock ding and that alone is the little divot won't hurt your fork seal at all uh, but it's it's the raised edges that hurt it so if you knock those down smooth um, hey you'll use that fork seal a long time but if you neglect that by the time you get home from your trip your forks are going to be puking all everywhere and you'll You'll end up going to the shop and having to have, you know, an expensive repair done that could have been avoided by, you know, a dollar's worth of memory cloth. <laughs> 
That's an excellent tip. And and just even the, the realization that bugs are, are so damaging to your fork. And this is clearly something that could uh, not only save you money, but also save you a lot of aggravation. Who wants to be on a trip and find that their fork seals start to leak and be stuck somewhere, maybe paying a premium where you could go to, uh, you know, your your local professional and get it done properly. But this, this, this dint now that you may have in your fork, let's say you did that and you took your emery cloth, the 200 or 400 grit emery cloth, you polish it off and away you go. That's something that the do-it-yourselfer can't do much about when they're when they're servicing it that's where they would bring it to you and you would polish it on your lathe well I, no we we can just do a nicer job of that but yeah you can by hand polish those nicks out no problem um you know if it's a something bad we will we'll start with 200 and then we go to 400 to make it shiny when we're done if you were on the road you might just carry the 400 um you know uh but the 220 would be 200, 220 or whatever would be fine to just knock the dents down, um, uh, the dings down. It, it's mainly you got to, and a file is too aggressive. We're not talking about um, a file, and we never, you know, one out of a, a thousand dents do we ever try and bring a file to, and that's only to try and save a fork tube for someone. Um, so it's not, they're small. What I'm talking about is small. It's going to look like the tip of a pin. Um, you're not going to look at it and say, "Wow, I've got a big, I got a ding in my fork." You got to look at it. You can, you know, uh, you can drag your fingernail down and find them. You know, they'll hook your fingernail, but you might not just look at it. You'll, you might see little shiny spots on your fork tubes. But so uh, they're smaller and more and more. They're small and deadly uh, in our business. Um, they'll, so that's what you kind of want to knock down and polish um, if you have that. But you'll know if you're in that environment. If you're not following anyone, you know, another rider, the odds of having dings on the front side of your fork tubes are pretty much non-existent. It's when you're riding with a group or with friends um, that that's going to be an issue. Um, now, the bugs are pretty much always going to be an issue. And let's face it, most people take a trip in the summer. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of, you know, let's say the bulk of the population of motorcyclists um, are, you know, fairer weather riders. And so, you know, if you're out on an 80 to 90 degree summer day, the temperature near your radiator at your forks is who knows what. So as soon as a bug hits your fork tube and splats on a nice, you know, 115, 120 degree fork tube, they cook on there and dry instantaneously. And now that's just the hard baked trash on your fork tube that your fork seal is going to start sliding across and start damaging it. So, um, uh, so anyway, Max, that, would you advise that people put shields on then? I mean, I know some of the bikes think my bike has shields on the front of the forks for this very reason. Um, would you advise that someone who doesn't have that shield on there put something on if they're riding in those conditions? Yes. Um, and there's a lot of times you can find um, uh, crossover parts, like a shield that's on one bike that'll fit your bike. Um, and even if, say, you have an odd model or you're using a bike that's not necessarily set up directly to be a you know, off the showroom floor adventure bike, um, there'll be frequently bikes with solid plastic guards that you can do that, uh, you know, you can get from and, and, um, and fashion something if you had to. Um, even if it came down to, you know, I know I'm going on a host, uh, on a, you know, an adventure trip with buddies and we're going to be in a line and we're going on gravel roads. Even if you take one of those plastic guards and hose clamp it you know, around, um, the seal head area, of, you know, there's no problem with that. I would definitely, I would opt for protection if it were available. 
if I was to bring my my bike to you and say, okay, now here I am, I'm stock suspension, I've got some miles on it, um, and I, I want to change this, I want to upgrade it, what would you advise that I do with it? So there's three routes that people tend to take when it comes to upgrades, and it's based on price points, typically. So the first and most cheapest is to have the fork refreshed, rebuilt, renewed, and have fork springs suited to their weight installed. Um, the, uh, the fork spring kits are typically around $125 from most companies, um, and that'll be springs and spacers. But that's going to make a huge difference, isn't it, right there? Because you'd said even just refreshing the oil and seals would make a difference. But when you're talking about setting the spring rates, we're talking a, a huge jump right there. Huge. Yeah, huge. <laughs> it's, a, it's the biggest bang for a buck anyone can do to any motorcycle anywhere of any genre, right, is, is to have it sprung for what you're going to do with it. And, and uh, let, let's look at that from an adventure bike standpoint. Not everyone goes on adventures with their adventure bike. So some people will have, you know, a far heavier street component to their usage, and they don't necessarily want it super soft and boingy. So changing the springs is not only going to change the, you know, suited to their weight. That's what I talk about changing it for intended use. And uh, that's, you know, sort of a, you know, hybridizing a bike that was intended to be an adventure bike, but aiming it more specifically towards road use. So, um you know, that's a dramatic change from a guy who picks up a big, soft, squishy, boingy adventure bike and um, now has it firmed up so that, you know, it's halfway between a, a street bike and an adventure bike that, that, you know, really can change his flavor of that bike. And um, so, uh, and then he can come back to, you know, I'm, you know, I'm a beginner rider. I'm just going to ease down uh, smooth gravel fire roads. Um, you know, what's, that's one intended use. Or you can say, hey, I'm a full-out adventure guy. I take this thing straight up the side of a mountain and down a rock descent on another side. That's a whole other guy. So, <clears throat> um, you know, one of those guys might be 150, mine might be 250. So weight and intended use, that's just the, the single biggest thing. And it's the smallest amount of money, and it's the biggest change. So, so the first level being uh, new oil seals and springs set up just for you for that bike, uh, an yep. amazing change. What about level two? Uh, level two would be, uh, depending on the component, um, you know, the bike and the make and model would be to ch uh, re change the way the damping works inside the fork, which is in our industry we call revalving the, the damping unit. Uh, the damping unit, again, the common term is a cartridge. So when, when you talk about having your forks revalved, that's um, when we go in and uh, it would be sort of like kind of taking a stock engine and making it into a racing engine. Um, that's exactly what we're doing with the stock damping component. Now, uh, don't let me scare you with the word racing. Uh, in other words, we're altering the way it functions to suit your uh, intended application and use. Um, and now frequently, uh, you know, components will come just again with the philosophy of some engineering group applied that just doesn't make sense a, a to our company or b to our customers or sometimes b to anyone else in the world and they don't know how it ever ended up that way so you know it some forks don't have enough damping force to control anything so you know therefore uh, we're not just tuning it for a style we're just trying to get it to a usable range of damping force uh, on the opposite extreme uh, some of the new triumphs for instance have so much compression damping force that they will barely move. Um, they're, they're so harsh to ride that anyone would benefit from, sometimes we, we give them less damping um, in certain directions and at certain uh, speeds. So 
to try and make it more compliant over uh, sharp bumps and larger hits. So um, that uh, step, next, you know, revalving, um, uh, typically at first stage of springs on service is around $400-ish in that area. The next stage of revalving is in the $800-ish range uh, uh, for us to go through and redo the cartridges. And then the last stage, which uh, is you know the best or the best upgrade um, available, is to simply replace the stock cartridges altogether with uh, uh, an aftermarket component like our AK20 action cartridge kit. Um, so that is a completely uh, redesigned cartridge that we manufacture 100% in-house here in our facility in Woodstock, Georgia. Um, in America, using American machines and American workers and a, on, a, on, a, on, a, on American raw materials. Oh, neat. And, uh, all of that stuff is uh, 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 combines for us to give an op a, a, a cartridge that will give an optimum damping curve for that style of bike and your intended use, but also made with higher quality materials that, um, for instance, will be hard code anodized. So that remember when I talked a lot about um, oil contamination from uh, parts rubbing against aluminum, mm -hmm. well, our cartridge is hard coat anodized, so none of that contamination occurs. Um, so does that mean longer service intervals? It, it really does. Uh, the limiting factor at that point becomes uh, fork bushing wear. If you begin, if you have to have a particular model that has odd fork bushing wear, um, now um, and. and and what it really translate to, translates to is more consistent performance over the service interval. So I'm not going to say, now go ride your bike 50,000 miles. I'm just, my, our goal is to still get you in here that once a year or hopefully, I don't know how many, you know, I don't, I don't have a clear impression of what the average adventure bike rider is riding his bike a year. It seems to be kind of a pretty broad spectrum. So it's not, I don't like to say, come and have your fork, fork, fork serviced annually. That's okay. If you drive your bike 2,000 miles, I'm gonna, not going to say that's necessary. Um, you know, and if you're driving your bike 50, I'm not going to say that's necessary either. And then also, it does depend on the on the on the use. So if you ride 50% highway, 50% fire roads, that's not the same as the guy who's you know really doing aggressive adventure riding, um, really hammering his bike and putting it through harsh environments and mud and rivers and streams and that kind of stuff. You know, that's going to dramatically accelerate the service interval. And you know, just like you would with an air filter, you know, if you drive your bike mostly on the freeway, air filter is not a problem. If you drive it down dust, you know, uh, desert roads, you know, with five guys in a line, um, you need to change your, you know, service your air filter, you know, once a month or something, maybe more than that. So it's, it depends upon again how bad the dust is. So there, there is in this particular market, uh, service intervals hard. You know, there is no predefined thing. You you should know when you're beating on your bike. And uh, and uh, and uh, sort of act accordingly, but um, you know, you know the, with the four cartridges, uh, we're able to uh, provide consistent, reliable performance over that service interval. Uh, you know, it's peace of mind when you, if you're going to go spend ten thousand dollars on a bike, and you know you're going to plan your annual vacation, you're going to be gone for two weeks, and everything's you know on the line. You know, why wouldn't you want to know that your bike was working optimally in as good a condition as it could be, you know? And so, you know, if you've got a big trip coming up, that's a great time to take your bike. Um, if you're not your own mechanic, 
let somebody take the components off, get some pieces serviced, have the bike really poked over by somebody knowledgeable, make sure your fasteners are tight and, you know, look for things that you might not see and get you set up for that trip. Because once you start, you're, you're, you're there for a ride and for an experience. You're not there for a drama and a component failure. I can't stress that enough. You know, by the time you've bought the bike and the helmet and the jacket and the rain suit and, you know, you're loaded up and you and your buddies are ready to head on your adventure, the last thing you need is for your bike to be failing you. So, And the thing uh, is, I guess, with suspension is what we're talking about here is something that, that can even affect your ability to ride. So it might, uh, you know, an, an optimum suspension or optimum operating suspension can be quite nice to ride across some things, whereas one that's operating poorly uh, or maybe very poorly can really turn that ride into, well, a lot more work at the very least. You know, work and you know so without now sounding like I'm this uh, crazy sales guy here uh, the biggest component of what we do is safety and uh, you know so I don't start off beating people with the head over the head with safety because then it makes you know me sound like I'm scaring you into uh, <laughs> yeah. what the real truth is uh, if you're if you ride comfort with comfort and control and confidence then you're inherently safer if your bike is doing something that disrupts your comfort, you get fatigued, you're now less safe. If it's something that doesn't give you confidence or frightens you because it won't soak bumps or, you know, wobbles or, you know, uh, bounces off of stuff instead of soaking it, you're going to have less confidence. That you're reduction, you have a reduction in safety. Like, so all of these things add up that we actually can provide you um, a safer bike to ride, never mind more enjoyable. And, and let's face it, the reason you bought it and got on it was you wanted to go enjoy yourself. Um, but when I think about safety, one of the things that we're able to do frequently over a stock setup is leave you a margin of error for you to screw up. And uh, I know that sounds funny, but a really proper working suspension will allow you to ride it very aggressively and leave you a little bit more room for when you screw up or you get in over your head. Right? And uh, that's you know, that's a super important component of what we're trying to do is uh, make sure that you have a safe, comfortable, uh, confident ride and it's safe for you. Um, and that, that all of that adds up to make, you know, a superior riding experience. And for $400, I mean, we're, talking, we're not talking a lot of money to have a, a huge change in your suspension. That, that $400, that's for the front shocks only, right? Yeah, the, the rear is even less. Um, you know, a spring for the rear of the bike is, you know, $100. Sometimes there's a spacer kit required. Um, and that's typically due to, or that's always, almost always due to, um, all OEM shocks have, a they specifically will coil a spring of whatever shape to fit that bike and that model in that space available. And uh, so it could be bizarre, one end, one diameter, the other end, the other, and a, and a strange length of an unknown, you know, uncommon amount uh, distance. So uh, aftermarket springs will tend to be, you know, same diameter at both ends. And then in inch lengths or millimeter lengths, six inches, seven inches, eight inches, nine inches, or 150, 175, 200. So if you had a 210 millimeter spring on your bike with a one tight coil and one big coil, we may end up having to machine a spacer to use an off the shelf spring to fit your bike. So again, $125 ish for the back, um, uh, shocks, since they're a pressurized sealed contained damper, um, don't have as the same, uh, let's call it uh, reduction in performance rate that shocks do or that forks do. I'm sorry, excuse me. And um, so therefore, you can kind of service those two to one. 
So if you're servicing your forks in that, you know, 20 to 30,000 mile range, depending on how harsh your environment is, you can double that for the shock. So um, yeah, uh, in the shock, you know, we'll, you know, you can do that in the 40 to 50,000 mile range typically, um, depending on the component. Now, uh, and let me bring that again full circle. Certain models of bikes, uh, consumers will know, wow, if I've driven this 25,000 miles, it's just worn out and junk. It's done, and there is no servicing it. And that's at the point a lot of people will buy an aftermarket component, an aftermarket shock absorber to go on the bike as well. So it brings me back to that, that this question that, that keeps popping up. How do we know definitively that we need suspension work? I mean, you know, we're talking about different ride styles, and, and there's there's going to be no way an odometer can tell you that. Because like you said, you have one person who rides on the street their entire uh, riding career with their bike. The other person may ride it every single day on, a, on potholes and over routes and things like that. And we're talking two extremes there. How do we know? Well... So you can kind of do some self-diagnosis um, uh, with your bike. Um, you know, first of it, you know, first one being, uh, how, you know, do you sense that it has damping? You know, is it controlled as you as you pull the brake? When you pull the brake, does it exhibit a controlled dive, or does the fork rocket, you know, down to the bottom and go clang? You know, does the fork ever bottom on you? You know, you get a mechanical clack, you know, clack, you know, when you when you uh, take even a small jump or bump. Um, the, a lot of the stuff is obvious to you. Does it shock your wrists, you know, when you hit sharp bumps? Um, do you, uh, you know, when you release the brakes in the front end return, you know, if you're stopping and you release the brakes, does the bike pop up and then bounce a few times, you know, like a blown shock on an old Ford pickup truck? Uh, same thing with your shock. You know, if you sense the shock absorber in the rear, do you, if you sense the wheel bounces under the bike, when it shouldn't be, you know, like if you hit a bump and it continues to bounce, that's just a component that's not working anymore. But um, if you ride along slowly on your bike in a parking lot or, you know, on your on your street in your neighborhood, if you kind of pick up into a jockey-like position, like a jockey on a horse, and bounce down and push on the handlebars, push your weight down on the bike, on the foot pegs and the handlebars kind of uniformly, you know, watch how the bike works. Does, is there a, a resisting force on the way down, something to support you? Does the bike return in a controlled fashion upward? If the bike just sort of boings and oscillates, you know, and you know, uh, just flounders on, um, it may just require adjustment, but it's telling you that it's kind of underdamped and out of control. So certain models of bikes, again, will have um, external damping adjustment, rebound and compression damping or sp and spring preload, that you can tune some of that. Um, now, uh, coming to that topic, um, I, I believe it's important to say that um, more is not always better in the world of suspension. So uh, frequently people just start cranking knobs up and uh, tightening knobs up and uh, it's not necessarily um, optimum. Uh, I do believe there's tons of information, you know, for almost every bottle of bike in the world. You know, you can go to the BMW 800 forum and uh, log on to there and go to the suspension section and say, do you have any recommended baseline settings? And there'll be, you know, 10,000 threads on what people have found to be a bell curve of decent settings uh, for a particular model of bike. So that's step one, if you don't have any idea where to start, is to kind of uh, get out there and look. Um, 
course, we all know if it's on the internet, it's a fact. And uh, <laughs> that's uh, tongue in cheek, of course. <laughs> correct. And so you you have to you you can draw your own bell curve. You know, nineteen guys said set it at four clicks out, and four said set it at three clicks out. Okay, I'm going to try it four first because the bulk of people believe that. You know, so. Um, and then in the end, they are knobs, and uh, so you know, don't be afraid to feel them and experience what they do with your bike. Um, uh, you can change them and put them back. Uh, a lot of the owner manuals will have uh, default baseline settings listed in them, um, and but again, uh, you'll you'll find there'll be an experienced group of owners on any model of bike that are very much into the ch suspension, excuse me, the suspension and chassis on their bikes. And they will, you know, develop usable settings through testing and experience over time that work well for that component on that bike. Um, and you know, again, you'll, there will be models or places where this shock just just claps out and it's no good, or this fork cartridge wears out internally, the aluminum goes bad, and then uh, um, that's a great time you might consider upgrading your fork cartridge because. Uh, there is no compelling reason to ever put stock shock or stock cartridges back on any bike anywhere in the world. There's just never been a superior factory cartridge um, and, uh, on any bike out there. So aftermarket components, uh, you know, like Olin's for adventure bikes and uh, or Traction Dynamics for components, that stuff is always made with higher quality materials anodized coatings, you know, in or here and there as required. There'll be lower stiction. The shafts will be, you know, higher quality of hard chrome. Uh, you, you know, they'll have a broader range of adjustment that's actually more usable. Um, the, so many of those, the, the reasons um, uh, that, that really offer a, a higher quality riding experience, um, you know, for the money you invest. Max, if somebody wants to use Traction Dynamics, how do they go about doing that? Well, the bulk of our business takes place through uh, mail order. Uh, uh, most people will take their components off or take their bike to their local mechanic and have them pull the components off, box them and mail them to us. We'll tend to turn them around in a week and uh, return them so it's not like your bike's apart a long time. And we, you know, we'll typically recommend to a guy, hey, you know, get, your, get a nice ride in on Saturday, Sunday, uh, take your bike apart, get your components boxed and get them in the UPS on Monday and, uh, you know, we'll try and uh, hammer them out uh, and get them back, you know, as quickly as we can. This time of year, it's it's a business week typically because we're hey everybody's getting ready to go riding now. But uh, uh, you know, our website is traction.com and that's spelled T-R-A-X-X-I-O-N.com. And I've great guys, uh, the, the knowledgeable guys you can talk to. Um, info at traction.com is our email, and we'll help get you set up, get you uh, recommend uh, what's available to your model of bike. And then, of course, it's always a question and answer. We want to know what are you doing? Are you are you really riding on a horrible uh, mountainous terrain? Are you doing just 50-50 pavement and gravel grinders, or or you know what's what's your particular program? And are you one up or two up? And uh, you 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 know saddlebags, gear, how um, how loaded are you? Uh, that kind of information. And then we we derive a plan for you, and then we'll give you those kind of three price points as to here's you know. Uh, maintenance and mine in springs and or here's um, you know level two level three kind of upgrade situations we'll recommend several uh, aftermarket shocks if you're looking to actually change a component out and uh, uh, again depending on what's available for your model of bike and then we try and offer you know competitive prices on those components um, you know 
Uh, it's very difficult to sell uh, shock absorbers these days simply because there's so many um, internet experts uh, selling shocks out of their garages. And uh, so while we can't be comp price competitive, uh, we call ourselves the cheapest with guys who don't have a with actual business, uh, we do tend to believe that for the the uh, extra premium you might pay to buy from us, we'll, we won't charge you retail, but we're, we'll try and give you a deal, but uh, hopefully there's expertise and technical support that comes along with the shock um, uh, as far as spring rate and fitment that you won't get from uh, just a generic over-the-counter bike shop or a guy running a small internet business out of his house kind of thing. <laughs> Max, thank you very much. You've been a, a wealth of information for us and certainly give us some wonderful tips. Hopefully I didn't babble on too much. I tend to, to uh, love to talk about suspension, and I can get carried away pretty easy. Well, that's certainly the person we wanted on for this. Thanks very much. We'll have to get you back on again. Okay, great. I look forward to it. I've been speaking with Max McAllister from Traction Dynamics, and you can find out more about Traction Dynamics and Max McAllister, for that matter, at their website, www.traction.com. Dot com. And don't forget, Traction is spelled T-R-A-X-X-I-O-N in this case. All right, now we're going to zip over to Seattle, Washington to Touratech USA, and we're going to talk with their suspension guru, Ian Glynn. So, Ian, let's start off by discussing, well, what a lot of people will say, actually, if you talk to them about the shocks in their bike and their suspension, a lot of people will just say, yeah, well, what do I need that for? I mean, my bike seems to handle fine the way it is, or, you know, I'm getting by. Yeah. So, it's suspension is a funny thing because it's doing it's doing two things. One, it's supporting the ride height of your motorcycle. That's your spring. And two, it's controlling the travel of the wheel up and down. It's it's making it so that it doesn't bounce, and it's making it so that it doesn't return to the ground too quickly and make the bike or make the motorcycle feel like it's pogoing, right? Uh, and suspension standard on every motorcycle is is kind of a budget piece. Uh, they they have to get the shocks produced at a certain cost so that the overall bike doesn't cost an arm and a leg, uh, and so. It's, I don't know a really nice way to say this, but the standard suspension that comes on nearly every single motorcycle out of the box is pretty poor uh, as far as build quality and performance is concerned. Uh, and then the performance just degrades from there. As your oil heats up, as the shock's been cycled a bunch of times, the damping quality starts to go away, and it goes away pretty quickly. Uh, but it's something that you don't really feel because it happens over time. It's not like... It's not like your tires start to wear out. You can look back and see that your back tire is starting to get square. You know, you're shocked. There's no really easy way to check, but people will start noticing that. Oh, my bike's a little bit harder to get on the center stand now, or oh, when I hit that pothole, I hear a funny noise, or when I'm going around a corner now with my luggage on, the bike seems to wallow a little bit in the corner, and those are all signs that your suspension's on its way out, if not already totally gone obviously there there are worse signs like there's a puddle of oil under the ground under my bike so and some of the stuff you can ride into so you can start riding your bike and it feels great and then after a while like you said it degrades but you've sort of ridden into it where you're, you're totally unaware and you may be oh, just finding that the you may not even be conscious of it but the bike may be handling like a bit of a piece of crap which is your you know the, yeah. that's the problem the, the real I guess issue for everybody is, is it's a shame that it wasn't as easy as something you could plug in where you could go into a shop and say plug me 
me in the new aftermarket suspension. Let me ride my bike and see what it feels like. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's it, honestly though, like even a brand new motorcycle off the showroom floor, if you took a water cooled 1200 GS with the dynamic suspension, uh, the, you know, the adjustable travel sensing, everything, and you rode it, you did a test loop and then came back. The thing had however many miles were on your test loop. And then you swapped over to the Turotech plug and travel, the DDA suspension. It's just stock replacement stuff, right? You went and ride the bike again. It'll feel like a completely different machine. It's, it's unbelievable how different it is, even just straight out of the box. It's interesting because everyone says this, but I think until you actually try it, it's very difficult to be convinced, especially the price of shocks. I mean, what is the average rear shock? Uh, it, there's a range from, for our shocks personally, there's a range from about 800 bucks up to almost 2,500, depending on which one you purchase. So it, it, they can be very costly. Uh, the way that I explain to people is if you, if you think about how many people spend money on performance upgrades, uh, how much does it cost to put a full exhaust system on your bike? Okay. Now, how much time do you spend with your throttle absolutely held at the stop? And then compare that to how much it costs to put suspension on your motorcycles and how much time you spend on your motorcycle going over bumps. Mm -hmm. Especially as an adventure bike and especially for the fact that a lot of us, a good good portion of people who buy adventure bikes, you end up loading them up, probably overloading them, um, and then beating them hard on a bunch of rough stuff. Yeah, absolutely. But even even on just smooth road riding, the with increased with better suspension you your tires spend more time on the ground and the motorcycle spends more time with the chassis supported in the position it's supposed to be so it increases comfort and it increases safety so you're talking about a smoother ride on the road absolutely it just depends on how you set up your suspension uh, and also i mean of course your ride height right if you imagine that with the stock spring, you've put 150 pounds of luggage on the back, and you as a rider, you weigh 200 pounds. Your your stock suspension is sagged, let's call it 50%. So you've got half of your suspension is now already used up just as, as up travel, just taking your sag with all your weight on it. And so when you hit a bump, you've only got half of your suspension worth of up travel to absorb that bump. And if your suspension had an appropriately sprung shock in it, then you'd be at 30% sag to start with. So you'd have the full 70% of your travel to absorb that bump in the first place. And when your suspension totally bottoms out, that's when the chassis of the motorcycle then gets bumped out of line of where it wants to be, to be safe, to be controlled. The issue that you run into is on most stock bikes, once you've put boxes and crash bars and bags and a passenger and some luggage onto it, the maximum adjustment of your preload clicker is is still not getting you into the appropriate spec range that or the appropriate sag, sag range that your manufacturer specs out. And when a manufacturer makes a bike, uh, clearly they have to they, they have to make um, uh, concessions in, in one place and another, and they've got to sort of meet uh, maybe a medium or maybe a, an area that will cover a lot of people. But the fact of the matter is, when we're when we're getting a bike, when we're ordering it, the the optimum way to order it would be to figure out what weight we're carrying, what weight we are, giving that to the manufacturer and having them spring the bike properly. That that absolutely would be the best way to do it, but I don't know of anybody that does that other than aftermarket shocks resellers like us. Sure, so, you can't you can't get yeah. it done. So so the point is yeah. though, because you can't get it done when you buy the bike, that's why you need to go and get it done in an aftermarket place like yourself. 
Sure, sure. Uh, and yes, you're absolutely right. And also, that's a great opportunity to upgrade to a shock that's not only stronger, but has better cooling properties and has much better valving setup for the type of riding that you're going to be doing. And talk about valving. What, what does that do for us? Uh, so the valving, that's referring to the, the part of the shock absorber that's traveling through the oil. So that's what's controlling the actual speed that the wheel can go up and down. Uh, just very basically, there's in most shocks, there's a stack of shims, and the shims actually deflect as the oil travels through a piston. Uh, and just the different rate at which those shims bend is opening and closing the orifice that the oil moves through. So uh, you've got you've got a certain amount of oil and you've got a certain speed at which that oil wants to move through the piston, right? And so your your valve your valving your shim stack is what what changes the whole feel of the shock. And almost all shocks will handle rebound dampening, but not all shocks will handle compression dampening. Uh, no, all, all shocks all shocks have rebound and compression damping, but not all shocks have adjustable rebound and compression damping. So uh, what you're thinking of is the clicker on the shock uh, at the bottom of the shock or at the top of the shock. And what those clickers are is they are just adjusting the orifice that the the orifice that controls the amount of oil that can bypass the shim stack. So the shim stack really handles 75, 80% of what your valving is. And those clickers that you're adjusting are just the last 30% or so. And they're really only effective in low speed compression and rebound, unless of course you're talking about an external reservoir shock with a high speed adjuster, uh, high speed compression adjuster, which is kind of a different thing. It's sort of like a pop valve, uh, hard to explain, but. When you're buying a bike, um, wouldn't the, the quality of the bike depend on the quality of the shock you're getting? In other words, if you bought a KLR, you, you're going to expect a certain kind of shock. If you're buying an F800GS, you're expecting a different kind of shock. Would that be fair? That's fair, yeah. Uh, with a KLR, you're getting an emulsion-style shock that does not have separate oil and gas. With an F800, you're getting at least a floating piston shock, but none of those bikes are going to have rebuildable shocks. Uh, none of them are going to have aluminum body shocks rather than steel body shocks. And on a lot of the on a lot of the shocks, the oil volume and the valving specs are going to be pretty small, right? So the the actual shock body can be can be very small, which lowers the amount of oil, which makes it so that it will heat up faster and overheat faster because it has a smaller amount of oil. Also, the steel bodies don't radiate heat the same way that the aluminum bodies do. So it's it's kind of a compounding problem. So the the when you're buying the aftermarket shock, you're not just getting a spring rate, you're getting different valving, you're getting the different body. What other sort of things are you getting? Uh, you're getting different attachments at the top and the bottom of the shock that are typically much stronger. Uh, with, with one of the newer Turatec shocks, this is something that I was in the meeting earlier about, uh, we're coming out with a line of shocks that are replacing the ESA shocks for the F800GS and a few other bikes here in the near future. And one of the big problems with the standard F800 ESA shock is that the stepper motor that controls that bypass needle that we were talking about mm -hmm. 
is it's mounted down in the lower clevis of the shock and it can be exposed to a lot of water and a lot of grit and the motor will actually get rusted up and the needle that that controls that orifice will get rusty and actually seize into the shaft and so with the Turatec ESA compatible shock that whole stepper motor assembly has now actually been moved inside the shock absorber right next to the shim stack so that not only eliminates the contamination of water and road grime but it makes the whole system a lot faster to respond because it's right there at the orifice. When someone's looking for an aftermarket shock for their bike, what do you think are the essentials? You really, first and foremost, you want to be able to find a shock that can be resprung to your weight and riding style. Uh, secondary to that, you want to get one that is, of course, strong enough and an aluminum body and rebuildable because shocks they're they're really designed to be serviced it's like anything as the oil breaks down you want to change the oil so that it keeps working the way that it should you know it 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 would be very difficult to sell a motorcycle and convince people that you never had to change the engine oil but people do that all the time with the shocks on their motorcycles they think oh it's just a shock it works fine all the time don't worry about it uh, so having something that's rebuildable will allow you to keep the shock operating the way that it was intended to for forever. <laughs> what about forks? Forks forks are different. Uh, there's a lot of different technologies that are available. Uh, in the past, it was just, you know, throw a new set of springs in it and maybe put a little bit of thicker oil into it. Uh, Turotex releasing a sealed cartridge conversion kit for F800 GSs, Triumph Tiger 800s, and some more bikes in the future. And that's that's actually a really cool thing because you're, you essentially take apart the stock fork and completely remove all of the internals of the stock fork, and you drop in the sealed cartridge kit, which is basically a, a it's like a shock absorber. It's assembled a lot like a shock absorber where it's a sealed system. It has a nitrogen bladder in it that's pressurized. There's no, there's no foaming going on in the oil. And this sealed cartridge you're actually dropping into the stock fork. And then you're allowed, you can pour in an oil that is a lot better at lubricating the bushings and the seals in the fork rather than having to worry about that oil doing the valving. Uh, and so this, it, it, that's, that's one of the cool things that we have coming for forks. The, what I was saying about the oil earlier, it's, it's kind of complicated, but there's damping oil has to be really, really stable under temperature, right? And so with a sealed cartridge, you can pour a suspension-specific oil into the sealed cartridge that's almost a two-weight oil. It's a very, very lightweight oil that's really, really temperature-stable. And you can use a much heavier 15-weight oil in the fork body that's much better at keeping the, the bushings and the seals lasting a lot longer. So for, for a bike that's going to be doing a world travel, you've now got something that is keeping the hardware components of the fork lasting and working a lot longer. And the damping components of the fork are sealed from that oil so they're not being contaminated by bushing wear mm. and if you blow a fork seal it's not going to hurt your damping at all it's just going to be leaking your your lubrication oil out essentially right 
whereas the sealed cartridge is still a unit that's damping at 100% effectiveness the whole time. And is that one of the problems with uh, uh, as a fork wears or as a shock wears in general, that the, the fibers that are coming off of the worn bushings, etc., are going through the valves? Uh, much more of a problem in forks uh, than in shocks, especially, especially upside-down forks. Every time that you hit a bump, the fork is actually bending, and the bushings are, are fighting against the pressure of that bend, right? So the bushings are wearing a lot more quickly on forks than they do in a shock. The, the fibers passing through the valving is not really an issue, but it does contaminate the oil and it changes the viscosity of it over time. And um, as far as remote reservoirs, let's, let's go back to the rear shock for a minute. Sure. Is it best to have a remote reservoir or is that actually required? It's having a remote reservoir allows you to do a few different things. Uh, a remote reservoir is essentially just setting up a secondary chamber on the shock absorber that as the shaft is traveling into the shock body and displacing oil, it's pushing that oil that it has displaced into that secondary reservoir. Now, that's a cool thing because you can control what happens to that oil as it's moving from one reservoir to another. So that's where you get your high speed and your low speed compression adjustments. Uh, your low speed compression adjustment is essentially just an orifice adjuster a lot like the rebound would be where it's allowing oil to bypass the shim stack. But your high speed adjuster is, is think about it like a seal that's spring loaded with a big spring behind it. And the harder that spring is pushing, the harder the oil is going to have to push against it to open that valve up. And so when you set up an external reservoir with a high speed or high speed and low speed compression, you can really finely control what's happening, how much the shock is resisting at different shaft speeds, because the shaft speeds are what's shooting that oil from one reservoir to the other. So it's, uh, it helps you with cooling the shock. It helps you with setting up a more adjustable situation. Uh, and it makes it honestly a little bit easier to separate the oil and the gas from the shock because you, you don't have to worry about packaging it in such a tall thing because you can move the reservoir to a remote location or off to the side of the shock. Yeah, that's, that's interesting when you were saying about the, the high and low speed adjustments. Um, so the, the low speed adjustment, as the, the, uh, the shaft moves up and down at a slower rate, it'll slowly go through the, the small orifice or the, or the low speed adjustment. Um, but only when it's punched hard does it manage to pop past that, that upper one. Does the bottom one stay open at that point too? Yeah, the bottom one certainly stays open, but you know it's it's limited by the size of that orifice. So regardless of how hard the oil's pushing on it, it can only move so much, right? I see. And now the yeah. reservoir is charged with nitrogen. How do you keep the oil and the nitrogen separate? So there's two main technologies for that. There's what's called a floating piston design, and there's what's called a bladder. Uh, the floating piston in our shocks is just a, an aluminum disc that has a groove cut around the outside of it for a big fat O-ring to sit into. And so the, the O-ring holds, or the aluminum disc holds the O-ring out around the inside of that reservoir. And on one side of it, you've got oil. On the other side of it, you've got nitrogen. And when you're filling the shock absorber with oil, you actually have a filling port that is drilled and tapped in in the area between the reservoir and the main shock body 
and when you're filling it, it's this really cool process where you you have the oil in a reservoir and you apply vacuum to that reservoir, and you you actually degas the oil. You can see the air bubbles coming out of just the oil as it, you poured it out of the bottle. It's pretty impressive, and then you push that oil that's been degassed under pressure into the shock absorber. And then you repeat that process a number of times where you're actually vacuuming everything out of the shock absorber. The shaft comes up, the piston comes up, and then you are pressure feeding that degassed oil again back into the shock absorber. It's, it's a very interesting process if you've never seen it done before, but it, it allows you to have just a pure oil fill in the shock so that it's super consistent under different heat and under different riding conditions. So then after you've done that, after you've filled it with oil, then you're, you set the piston height because obviously you need to have a certain amount of area that that piston can travel through as the shock shaft displaces oil. Uh, and so you set that piston height and then you pressurize the gas side of the piston. So all this work to, to degas the oil, this is to make sure that you don't get foaming, correct? Exactly right, yeah. So if you're thinking about those orifices, orifices that we talked about and the, the shim stacks that we talked about, once you have, it, that, those work really consistently and really well when you've got just pure oil. But when you have a foamy solution, you can imagine how quickly that becomes inconsistent if, when you're getting bubbles and then some oil and then some bubbles going through all those circuits. How many miles do you think the average bike is going to get out of a set of shocks? Uh, so you have to ask yourself, are we talking about good miles or are we talking about just miles until the shock is totally dead? That is the question, isn't it? And, and does it also yeah. matter? I mean, how we're riding it because riding in the street as opposed to someone who rides loaded off road. It, it absolutely does make a difference mainly because as you're riding off road with more weight, you've got your damping adjusters turned in more. So you're making that oil work harder. So you're making it heat up more. And as we said, heat is really what kills these things. So uh, as far as good performance is concerned, a stock shock, really out of the box, it's not great. Uh, but it'll last, you know, five, 10,000 miles before there's noticeable, uh, noticeable degrading in the performance. Uh, with one of the Turatech shocks, for guys who are riding them really, really hard, uh, we like to have a full oil change in a service every 15 to 20,000 miles. That's if you're riding it really, really hard. Uh, as far as just lasting is concerned, I mean, there are stock shocks that have 100,000 miles on them. There are Turatec shocks that have 100,000 miles on them. If it was my shock, I would want to get it serviced and get the oil changed so it was working 100% again. But they'll they'll go and go and go for a very long time. But the idea of having them rebuildable and serviceable is is to make the shock last forever, basically. I mean, you're going in, you're, you're servicing the thing as you should with all of your components on your bike and hopefully going to get a longer overall life. That's absolutely right. And you're not going to have a failure at an inopportune moment. So it, you, can, you can run one forever, but you can be sure it's not going to blow its seal when you're just putting it on the center stand in the garage. It's going to be when you're in the middle of nowhere with your luggage. Yeah, of course. I mean, the bikes always seem to know this for sure, too. <laughs> they do. Because yeah. how many times have we read, Ian, you know, that somebody is on some trip going around the world and their shock is blown out? I mean, that seems to be like the most common thing you read about. Yeah, it is. Uh, and actually, Helge Peterson of Globe Riders every time that he's gone on one of his world trips, 
he he always takes spare shocks and he always blows up a shock on his trips and on the last two trips that he's gone on he's he's a local here in seattle with us and so we've set him up with suspension on his last two trips Mm -hmm. and every time he he insisted i need another set of suspension as a spare okay helge okay okay and on every single one of his trips those spares were used but they were not by helge they were on another customer's bike who had different aftermarket parts and their shocks broke and every single time more bikes came back on Turtex suspension than left. <laughs> wow. Well, then that's, <laughs> so, that's good for you guys. I mean, that's a, a yeah. testament, isn't it? So, what, yeah. what is he doing to blow his shocks? I mean, obviously, Helge Peterson is very experienced. He's not going to run overloaded. What on earth is he doing? It, it, it's, it, like I said early on, you've got a lot of cases where aftermarket suspension companies are taking road and track and race-proven technology and they're applying that exact same componentry to adventure bike shocks just by putting a heavier spring on it, right? So now you've put a heavier spring on something, that means that it can it can support the ride height of the motorcycle, but it can't necessarily take the abuse that the motorcycle is going to be seeing when he's when Helge's riding it for 150 days in a row, you know, all over the world, right? So there's there are different building there are different techniques there are different materials there are different construction things that you can do in the shock absorber to make them a lot stronger so if somebody's looking for an aftermarket shock which really everybody should be all of us okay so if we're looking for one what do we need to look for so this is this is interesting because i want to just i want to just talk suspension and i don't want to like speak too highly about Turotech or, or differently about anybody else. But uh, like I said, first and foremost, make sure somebody can respring it for the rider. Uh, secondly, make sure it's rebuildable. And from there, just take a good hard look at the materials and the, the way the shock is assembled. So look for look for the shaft diameter, look for the material the shaft is made out of, look at the technology that's gone into the seals look at the way that the thing's actually constructed and, and really just just look and try and get the strongest, most reliable shock that you can because unless, of course, you're buying it for a track bike and you want it to be awesome for 40 minutes at a time and then get rebuilt, <laughs> which, right. you know, some people are looking for, but not the adventure bike people. <laughs> you mentioned shaft diameter and you, and you mentioned seal quality. Mm-hmm. What's good? What, where do we look? Uh, so 16 millimeter is pretty much the, the industry standard for a heavy duty shock. Uh, the materials, uh, chromoly steel is the, is the highest strength you can get. Uh, some type of mild steel with a chrome plating on it is not nearly as strong. Uh, the chrome plating will last on the surface about as well as actual chromoly steel will, but the shaft is not as strong. Uh, the aluminum that the shock body is made out of uh, don't don't even buy a shock if it's not an aluminum body. Uh, but the aluminum that it's made out of should be a very high grade, should be very high quality. It should be anodized uh, so that it doesn't corrode inside and out. Uh, I you know there's there's so much that goes into it. I could talk forever about it. Uh, but just just look for look for something that's that's very well made. Uh, and to give you some examples, the, the Turotech shocks, one thing that they're doing that's different than pretty much every other shock on the market is the seal head that actually holds 
the the low friction Teflon backed seal that holds the bushing that the shaft rides in and out on, that holds the top out elastomer bumper. It holds out. It, it basically, it's it's what stops your shock from overextending and becoming two different pieces. Uh, that whole component on most shock absorbers is is just slid into the shock body and then there's a circlip that you put in and the only thing that's actually holding that in place is just the pressure of your nitrogen is pushing down on the oil against that seal head right mm -hmm. so the turatex shocks it's actually a unit that is threaded and the shock body is threaded and that whole assembly screws together and actually locks in and seals some o-rings in place and what that means is that if you're on a world trip and for some reason you lose some of your nitrogen pressure or you lose a little bit of your oil in the system somewhere, that, that seal head is still going to be held together mechanically to the body and it's not going to slide out of position and make the leak exponentially worse or even worse than that, pop out and, and make the shock come apart and fully fail. Uh, so that's that's one thing that really sets the Turtex shocks apart from everything else. And if you imagine the the manufacturing and the cost that goes into cutting all of those threads so precisely uh, and making all of that assembly fit together perfectly versus just cutting a ring for a circlip, uh, that's that's one of the things that really sets our shocks apart. Uh, the other thing that really sets our shocks apart is the preload adjusters, and. Most the the hydraulic preload adjusters, I should say. So pretty much every adventure bike comes with some sort of a hydraulic preload adjuster, and pretty much every aftermarket rear shock comes with some sort of hydraulic preload adjuster, and they're all mechanically very very similar. You've got you've got an aluminum sleeve, and then you've got an aluminum piston, and there's O-rings in between the two of those things, right? And this goes back to one of the issues I was talking about earlier where you're taking a, a shock that was designed for a relatively light racing motorcycle and then you're putting a very heavy spring on it for an adventure bike is you're using that same preload adjuster and it's not built to handle the internal pressures of pressing down a much, much stiffer spring and being pushed on by a much, much heavier motorcycle. So the internal working pressures inside those preload adjusters are so high that they're just blowing out the O-rings. And if you read in the fine print on a lot of our competitors, they'll talk about the preload adjusters. They'll say, yeah, you can turn that preload adjuster up, you know, if you're gonna run to the store and get some groceries or something like that, but don't travel with the preload adjuster cranked up at all. And that's because the internal working pressures are so high that they just, they'll explode, right? What's the point of having it then if you can't crank it up? <laughs> well, you can crank it up, but only to get groceries. <laughs> so, the, <laughs> so the question was the answer in itself. <laughs> exactly. Uh, the uh, the Turatec one, if you if you look at them side by side, the Turatec preload adjuster is huge. It, it has three times the fluid volume that all the other ones do, and that they did that on purpose to actually lower the internal working pressures down to something that the O-rings and the standard construction techniques can handle without blowing up. So the, the Turatec preload adjuster, it's, it's much wider and it's kind of difficult to fit into a lot of bikes. And that's why they've had to go with a remotely activated preload adjuster where the collar is still on the shock absorber, but the handle to adjust it is remotely mounted. Hmm. Uh, and the, the thought behind that is that now you have a preload adjuster that 
totally works so that you can have a bike set up with a spring that rides nice when you're just riding it around town with just yourself on it. But also when you go on your big travels and you load the luggage on your bike, you can crank that thing up and get your ride height back to where it should be. And you don't have to worry about that blowing out while you're riding. And one of the questions that I put to everybody was um, how to test and, uh, and assess your shocks and its condition. I know we sort of touched on this, but do you have a method um, that you recommend that people try, you know, jumping off a curb, bouncing it up and down, doing whatever to find mm-hmm. out if it's time to replace their shocks? Or what would you tell people if they're asking you, how do I know? Well, honestly, if, <laughs> if, the, if the budget is there for a new shock and you've got more than 5,000 miles on your standard shocks, the answer is yes, you need to replace them. Uh, secondary to that, bounce off a curb. If the bike rebounds more than once, that's definitely time for a new shock. Uh, go to put your bike onto the center stand. If it feels like it's way too hard to get on or much harder than you remember it being, it's probably time for a new shock. Uh, How do we know that's just not too many burgers or maybe a winter <laughs> off? <laughs> yeah, you know... That's a good question. Uh, the other thing you could do, and this is something that, that so few people do, but it's actually very easy to do, is look in, look in your manual or look online and find out what the actual specified ride height of your motorcycle is supposed to be, what the, what the sag number is supposed to be, and load your bike up the way that you normally ride it and see if you can still hit that sag number by adjusting your stock suspension. And for most guys, the answer is no, you can't. Uh, and so that's, we actually wrote a blog piece that we put up on our Turotech blog about exactly how to measure your suspension sag. Uh, and you can go in and see it. And we wrote it up real nice. We took a bunch of pictures, you know, have somebody hold the bike, stand on it, measure the measure from a fixed point to the axle, and then put the bike on the center stand and measure from that same fixed point to the axle and see what the difference is between full extension and the compressed state when you're at your standard, you know, this is the gear I carry, this is me on the bike load, right? And if you can't hit that sag number that's in your manual or in the documentation for your bike, it's time to get a new shock. It's time to get new springs at the very least. Right. So if you're below that number, uh, like well, lower than that number. Yes. Yeah. Technically, you'd have a larger sag number. So right. the, the bike is... So what we use as a rule of thumb for most adventure bikes is somewhere between 30 and 35% of your total travel is what your sag should be, right? So if, you're, if, your bike has, if your bike has 100 millimeters of travel, you should have 30 millimeters of sag. Now, most of these bikes don't have 100 millimeters of travel. They have about 200 or 250, depending on what they are. So... Uh, for a 1200 GS, we like to see 58 to 65 millimeters of sag at the back. Ian, thank you very much for coming on and talking about suspension with us today. We'll have to get you back sometime. No problem. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. I've been speaking with Ian Glynn from Touratech USA, and you can find out more about them and the suspension products they have at www.touratech-usa.com. Now, I'm willing to bet that you know right now that is the end of this episode. It's already ran an hour and 50 minutes almost. And the only reason we let it go like this is because we wanted to get all this suspension stuff in there. It's just too much great information to leave out. So I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you stayed awake and listened to the whole thing. I had a lot of fun with it, and I learned a lot. I hope you did as well. 
This is Adventure Rider Radio. Now it's time to get out there and ride your bike. Ride safe. Wait, before you go, I've asked you before to go to iTunes and give us a rating. Do me a favor. Just take a few minutes right now. Buzz over to iTunes and give us a rating. And click on the subscribe button. There's a little subscribe button there. Make make sure you subscribe in iTunes. That makes a difference on our ratings. I'm Jim Martin. Thanks for listening. Adventure Rider Radio is made possible through Canoe West Media. Special thanks to co-producer Elizabeth Martin. This episode of Adventure Rider Radio is brought to you in part by Audible. Audible is offering our listeners, that's you, a free audiobook of your choice and a free 30-day trial membership. Just go to audibletrial.com forward slash ARR. And of course, the ARR is the acronym for Adventure Rider Radio. And you can choose from over 180,000 audio programs. Download a free title and start listening. It's that easy. Go to audibletrial.com forward slash ARR. That's audibletrial.com forward slash ARR and get started today. Remember, it's a no risk thing. Just go there, sign up. If you don't like it, you can cancel in 30 days. Hello, here's Herbert Schwarz from Touratech and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. (laughs) 